Hey there, thank you so much for listening to the Big Time Talker podcast on the Blog Talk Radio Network, live from Washington, D.C. I'm Burke Allen. Thank you to our show sponsor, Speaker Match. They are the world's largest online virtual speakers bureau. If you're a keynote speaker or you're a meeting planner, visit speakermatch.com and get together. Our guest today is someone that uh, can hopefully shed some light on uh, a scary current issue. The United States has administered far less vaccine doses than it should have. They're lagging way behind. federal government has repeatedly promised they were going to get 20 million people before the end of the year. That did not happen. We want to know why. And so Dean Finelli is the guy with the answers. He's a vaccine expert, expert on pharmaceutical, chemical-related technologies. He works in that world from a legal standpoint here in Washington, D.C., so, Dean, what's the story? Why the slow roll on the rollout on these vaccines? Yeah, it's good to join you. Thanks for having me. I think, you know, we've seen that as of yesterday, there's been about 21 million doses rolled out, about 6 million in the arms. So it looks like, you know, certainly we're well behind where we want to be. We wanted to have 20 million, you know, administered by the end of 2020. So we're significantly behind that. And I think it looks like the reason is not so much, you, you know, you could see that, 20 million doses rolled out, only 6 million doses administered. It seems like, you know, why aren't these administrations being done? And it looks like that's what the lag time is. You know, the federal government uh, oversaw the distribution of the vaccine to the states. And once it got out to the states, it was up to the states to actually administer the vaccine to individuals. And it looks like that's where the lag is. It looks like we're hitting a bottleneck, meaning we're not having enough people to uh, administer the vaccine quick enough. Now, it looks like uh, at the local level, they are uh, making uh, corrections to, you know, get that level up. So hopefully we'll do that quick because we keep asking ourselves, when are we going to get back to normal? And the magic number we have to hit is, you know, for herd immunity, we need to immunize about 250 million Americans. So if we do the math on that, that comes out to about a million a day. So we're about halfway there. So we need to certainly get quicker. We need to get more people available to administer the vaccine. And I think that's, at least in my opinion, where the the lag is, the administration, not necessarily the distribution. Dean Vanelli is our guest today, and we wanted to talk to Dean. Uh, He's not a physician. He's an attorney. He has a Ph.D. in organic chemistry, but he's been in this field in pharmaceutical and biotechs for a couple of decades now. Um, including the licensing and transactions of these drugs, due diligence. And uh, you say that it's sort of on a, a state and local level. Um, the states, in some cases, are pushing back against that. But I think we can all agree that if there's a bunch of vaccines in storage scattered all across the country and not getting into people's arms, that's a big problem. Does it make any sense, uh, with your background in all this, to to lean on uh, the military, the National Guard, who have these logistics capabilities to help with this rollout? Yeah, certainly, uh, you know, getting this out, you know, we need to get this out. And I think uh, as far as the coordination at the federal level, you know, the DOJ, or excuse me, the, the DOD, Department of Defense, is involved in that distribution. And uh, I can't recall the name of the general, but there is a general who's overseeing the, at the federal level, the distribution. Now, you know, you bring up a good point, I think, there should have been a lot more coordination. It shouldn't have been, hey, we're the federal government. We're going to give it to the states and now let them deal with it. I think there had to be a lot more coordination at the federal and state level to coordinate to 
you know, where we get these, because it may be an issue of not only just getting it to the state for a distribution level, but also, you know, making it more efficient at distribution at the state level. So we need more coordination, I think. And I, and, you know, as I hear on the news and what I'm reading is it looks like we're kind of quickly learning from these initial mistakes and hiccups. So uh, I'm optimistic that in the next couple of weeks, you know, we'll get where we need to be, but certainly we're not there yet. Look, you're a reasonable guy, and I'm a reasonable guy too. And and over 300 million people in America, this is a heavy lift by any stretch. But it certainly seems to me, uh, you know, to paraphrase <laughs> an old line, if you can put a man on the moon, you can figure out how to get a bunch of shots into arms. And and this did not come out of the blue. This isn't something that that uh, surprised anyone. You know, we've been dealing with this vaccine. Uh, coming down the pike for a long time. And yes, it did happen a little faster than, than I think some of us expected. And that's a good thing. But, you know, there was essentially nine months to figure out how to make this happen. So, you know, where's the bump in the road in the planning? Yeah, again, it looks like it was at that federal level and that coordination with the state level. And to put, put that in perspective, you're right. I mean, if we use the flu vaccine, uh, as an analogy, you know, 150 million Americans get the flu vaccine every year. Now, obviously, you know, this is a little more complicated. Uh, the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines are each two-dose vaccines. So every dose that's out, you know, you're going to need two doses to get that full 95% efficacy rate we've been hearing about. Um, and as well as, you know, the Pfizer vaccine has to be kept at cold temperatures. But again, this isn't something that just popped up. This was known. It should have been planned for. And, you know, you could expect some initial hiccups. Uh, you know, I don't want to make excuses because, you know, we're now coming into the second week of full week of January. Uh, we need to get these numbers up pretty quickly. So hopefully, you know, unfortunately, I think until the new administration takes over, you know, we may still see this little bit of lag because, uh, you know, there are obviously other things going on. But yeah. hopefully, you know, once the new administration's over this, you know, these hiccups are dealt with and, you know, there's a lot more coordination at the federal and state level. Dean Vanelli is a vaccine expert. He's worked in the field in, in biotech and, and pharmaceuticals for the last couple of decades. And he's an attorney based here in the Washington, D.C. area. Um, there, there have been some reports, Dean, and, and I don't know if you have any uh, background on this, or if you're hearing this from your circles of pushback from some healthcare providers specifically nurses who don't want to take it they you know they don't want to be the guinea pigs in that world um i wonder a if you have heard any of that and if there's any validity to that but also b as somebody who has a long background specifically in pharmaceuticals and biotech and vaccines if there's anything you could say to a healthcare professional who's listening right now to sort of uh, allay and, and put down some of those fears. Yeah, certainly I have heard that. And look, you know, there's, there is skepticism out there. This has been developed quickly and I understand the skepticism and I'm certainly not here to tell your listeners, Hey, take the vaccine because I said so. And let me answer your second question of why, at least in my opinion, I think it's safe. You know, MRNA is, you know, there's a lot of misinformation out there. The Pfizer and Moderna are both mRNA vaccines. Now, what uh, is that for our listeners, mRNA? mRNA is a nucleotide. You know, we hear DNA, uh, the genetic code. mRNA is a precursor to proteins. And th typically when we think of a vaccine, you think of a, uh, a dead version of the, the virus, a weakened version, 
or a surface protein that's indicative of the virus. Here, where these Pfizer and Moderna vaccines take it a step further or upstream, so to speak, and they code for the protein, specifically the spike protein. So instead of administering a vaccine with the protein, they the, the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines have the code, the genetic code for that protein, that spike protein, it gets into the cells. Now, it does not get into the nucleus. So there's information out there that, you know, this is altering our our DNA. That's completely false. Uh, mRNA lasts about, it stays in the body about a day or so, uh, and then it just disappears. Uh, it works quickly to, to use our cellular machinery. So it gets into the cells, but not the nucleus of the cell. So we don't have to worry about altering DNA mRNA has been studied. Moderna has been working on mRNA for the past decade. Uh, other companies, CureVac in Germany, another company developing a vaccine, has been working on mRNA for 20 years. So we're familiar with mRNA per se. The other aspect of the mRNA is how it gets into the cells. And this is it's delivered by what's called lipid nanoparticles. And these are basically carriers of these polymers Uh, And these ionizable lipids or fats, so to speak, that shuttle the mRNA into the uh, into the cell. So, again, you know, there's a lot of background data on the lipid nanoparticles testing that's been done over the years. So it's not as if, you know, the mRNA per se and the carrier per se were just they just came up with them last January, last February, last March. And we've only had about a year's worth of data. There's a tremendous amount of data on the, the aspects of the vaccine, in addition to the clinical trials that have been done over the summer, in addition to the fact that when you think of a vaccine, you think of, from a safety perspective, more of a, an immediate reaction. So that's why we're hearing in about a dozen or so people, they had this you know severe allergic reaction where they had to get Benadryl or even worse, epinephrine, but that's very, very rare. So typically for the majority of people, you know, you're gonna see very uh, small side effects. Most people won't really experience any side effects. Some people just similar to the flu shot. In some cases, you know, under 20% of people will have, you know, fever, flu-like symptoms. But again, you know, I encourage people to go to FDA.gov to educate themselves. You know, there's a tremendous amount of information out there. And I'm here just to tell people, in my opinion, I think they are safe. I've looked at this. I've lived this for a while. And I, you know, I believe that the vaccines are safe. I would take it myself, but certainly I'm not here to tell anyone, go out and get it uh, unless you feel safe. And in my opinion, if it's available, once my group is up, I will get the vaccine. Would you have your parents do it? I would, and I'm encouraging them to do it. They're both in the, they're not in that uh, uh, phase 1A group. Uh, They'd probably be in that phase 1B group. They're both over 75, uh, and I would encourage them to get it. Fair enough. Dean Finelli, our guest today, he's a partner in the uh, IP department, a big law firm here in D.C., but his focus has been for the last 20 years, uh, pharmaceuticals, biotechs, and and based on all the scientific data that you just gave us, you you clearly know your stuff. So I'm going to dig in a little bit more on this, and uh, I want to know what you know about these new strains that are apparently so much more contagious, and if that's something that, uh, A, we should be worried about, and B, if we've got any data as to whether uh, these vaccines that are, are out there for Moderna and Pfizer are going to take care of those? 
Yeah. So first of all, you know, the, the vac, the excuse me, the virus has mutated many times already. So it's not as if there was initially one strain. Now there's two more contagious strains. Uh, there's it's mutated hundreds of times, probably over a thousand times already. Uh, it's just that these are in the news because it looks like the uh, strain that was in the UK and this new strain in South Africa are a little more transmissible. And why that's but not more deadly. And but nonetheless, why it's a concern is because, you know, if it's more transmissible, more people in those high risk groups may get it and then, you know, leads to higher hospitalizations and worse. So that's why it's a concern. So uh, in my opinion, uh, the the types of mutations we're talking about, uh, they are on the spike protein. And that's the area that of the virus that most of the vaccines are targeting. So if it mutates too much, we could be in a situation where the vaccines wouldn't work. Uh, it looks like based on some preliminary data, what they did was they tested the new strains of the vaccine. They took blood samples from people who have who have antibodies uh, and then tested those antibodies, those convalescent antibodies uh, against the new strains. And it looks like the the new vac or excuse me, the current vaccines will be effective against the new strains. Uh, we don't have the concrete data yet, but it looks like from the preliminary data that the, the Pfizer and the Moderna vaccine will, will both be effective against these new strains, which is really great news. With with those new strains being so much more contagious, and we're already in a place now where, uh, you know, give or take a few folks, there are you know, 4,000 4, people dying a day in this country from from COVID. If, if it gets any more contagious, are we in real trouble here? We are. And, you know, you have to think about it from the perspective of, you know, most pe- we keep hearing most people, you know, are going to be asymptomatic. Most people are going to recover. Most people are going to be fine. But there is a large segment. I mean, when you talk about that high risk group over 65, uh, those people with, you know, their immune system after we hit 50, our immune system really tends to drop off a cliff, so to speak. Uh, and, you know, it's a risk. So, you know, for most of us, we should be okay, but you have to think about others. That's why it's just, you know, I think it was a tremendous achievement that we have vaccines, two vaccines already, but also I think it was a real problem that, you know, we have this issue about, you know, don't wear a mask, wear a mask. I mean, please wear a mask. I mean, they work. It's shown to be work scientifically, you know, even if you think you're healthy and, you know, you will be fine. If you have the, the virus, you could spread it to your loved ones, to your grandparents, parents, who may be in that high risk category. And more importantly, it's not 100 percent safe for people, you know, young, healthy people there. We're seeing more and more over the last couple of months, people in the hospital and people that are dying were relatively healthy people with no known uh, conditions that would put them in a higher risk group that are winding up on ventilators and 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 passing from getting the the virus. So it's really imperative that people continue to wear the mask. Even after you've been vaccinated, you need to still wear the mask. You know, I saw a, a study, I think it was in Lancet a couple of days ago, that up to 50%, uh, half of the people that are carriers are asymptomatic. They have no idea they got it. Um, and that's the scary piece of this whole thing. Dean Finelli is our guest today on the Big Time Talker podcast, brought to you by uh, Speaker Match. We're talking COVID-19 and the coronavirus, and Dean is a vaccine pharmaceutical expert, uh, PhD here in Washington, D.C., who's been in and around this for a long time. And and based on that, um, to help paint a, a picture for the folks who are listening, 
I'd, I'd love, Dean, if you could sort of go back in your mind a little bit to when you first became aware of COVID-19 working in this industry and when you realized, you know, this is going to be a pretty big damn deal, bigger than most people know. Where were you and when did it happen for you? Yeah, you know, it was it happened very quickly. And I actually remember it vividly because I remember, you know, the beginning of March uh, in 2020. I remember having lunch with a, a friend of mine and we're talking about, you know, going out to dinner with the wives and, you know, having a nice time in a few weeks. And then March 18th, everything basically shut down in the U.S. And, you know, we still haven't been out for that dinner. So, I, you know, the beginning of March when we started to, you know, you started to hear about the virus in the January timeframe, February timeframe. And I think most people were just kind of, you know, seeing what was going on in China, what was, you know, what was we were trying to understand what this was. But from, you know, hearing about it, learning about it, hearing about how it hit New York so rapidly, I mean, this was very, very quick. Did you have any insider information? Were you able to read the tea leaves at all because you're in the industry? Or did it really catch everybody, including the medical and pharmaceutical community, off guard like it did the rest of us? I certainly caught, caught me off guard. Now, you know, the um, certainly the government, people that are, you know, whether there's first line, um, you know, the national security experts in the U.S., you know, I'm sure they were well aware of it in the December, January timeframe. Uh, Dr. Fauci, who's really, in, at least in my opinion, I think he's done an incredible job. Uh, you know, he's he was probably aware of it looking at this. But at least from my perspective, I didn't have that inside knowledge that, that they had at the federal government that these individuals had. For me, I was caught very much off guard. I have a, a friend, Dean, who I've known for many, many years, who works in medicine for a research hospital in St. Louis. And he has opined to me from being around a lot of really smart people. Uh, Greg has said that, that, you know, as awful as this has been, that, you know, thank God it, it's almost like a starter pandemic. If this were one that was really, really deadly, it could have decimated this country. And I wonder if, if you have any thoughts along those lines. I do. And, you know, you think about back uh, about 10 years ago, when we were dealing with the, you know, the previous outbreak, you know, that infected about 60 million Americans. And, you know, that luckily it wasn't as, you know, we were able to get our hands around it quickly and it wasn't as deadly, but, you know, we, we really, I mean, I hate to say, say it this way, but, you know, the fact that it's not affecting kids is really, uh, you know, tremendous news. And it's more in those, you know, older people, you know, I'm trying to say this gently, but, you know, you have, God forbid, it was the type of thing, you know, because typically kids are also, you know, when you're thinking of respiratory virus like the flu, kids are also very highly susceptible. Their immune systems aren't as, um, you know, strong until they, you know, hit those teenage years and early 20s. So, I mean, I think I agree with your colleague that, you know, we did get very, very lucky because, you know, this is spreading. Uh, it's targeting, you know, an older uh, segment of the population um you know, very hard but you know had this been you know more deadly uh you know we could have this really and, and the response you know and especially the politicization of this you know we could really be talking about a disaster so you know as bad as it's been uh it could have been a lot worse 
Dean Finelli, our guest today, we're talking about COVID-19 and uh, the delay in the rollout of the vaccines and what needs to happen there. Um, Dean, I'll share something personal with you. My mother was a, a childhood polio survivor, and I wonder often if, if in fact, COVID-19 had affected kids, would we have seen a completely different public policy posture? Uh, would this have been much less politicized? And th- again, thank God it wasn't, and that it didn't affect our children nearly to the, the degree that it, that it has our older population. But would it have been different? You know, I, I, I would think so, you know, because, you know, we always look at kids, they're our future, and, you know, when we see things that affect kids, it really jumps out at us. I, I would think so. Unfortunately, you know, the, you know, with this whole, it was politicized and, you know, there's this still going on this, you know, we just saw, uh, you know, these protests Wednesday with a lot of people that were out or, you know, protests is obviously an understatement, riots Wednesday that, you know, we had all these people and, you know, at this March before it, it devolved into, you know, this terrible chaos. riot. Yeah. The chaos, you know, these people were at a rally, so to speak, you know, none of them were wearing masks, you know, so there's still even what we know now, uh, almost a year later, you know, there's still, uh, you know, a lot on it's been politicized and people view it as, you know, a sign of weakness for some reason. So, you know, I'd like to think, you know, we would have made a different response. But, you know, seeing what we see now, even with the knowledge we have that we're still not learning from uh, some of the science that we learned, you know, I, I'm, I wouldn't not too optimistic that we would have done things differently. Let me uh, let me play devil's advocate for just a, a minute here and ask you because you're talking about masks. Ask you about the concept of of stringent lockdowns. You know, everybody did that in in mid March to April, um, and and we all sort of came together. It was very much reminiscent of, of what happened right after nine eleven, where the country you know was all sort of in lockstep together to try to to put this thing down. Well, here we are, ten months later, and there are places like California who have extraordinarily strict lockdown measures in place, uh, especially places like Los Angeles County, where I know lots of folks, and yet Los Angeles County is just decimated. So based on what you know from working in this biotech industry and in and around pharmaceuticals all these years, do do lockdowns really work? You know, I, I think in March, I mean, and especially in this country, you know, autonomy, personal autonomy, is one of the fundamental freedoms that people have. You know, we don't like being told what to do. I think, you know, in March, we we recognized, I think, there, a short lockdown, a two-week lockdown, three-week, whatever it was at the time. You know, I got it. I understood it. But unfortunately, we had a situation where, you know, we had a lockdown. We didn't learn, you know, we didn't have this unified federal policy of, you know, where we're going to open up now, but we have to wear the masks. You know, so then we got into a situation where, you know, we had this second wave come in, you know, so I, at least in my opinion, I think if this, if we could learn anything, you know, we can't have a situation where we're opening the economy, closing the economy, opening the economy, closing the economy. You know, we have to have a unified message. We had to say, look, let's close the economy for three weeks. Let's get this under control. And, you know, we have to have a unified mask policy. That's the only thing that at the time we had no vaccine. That's the only thing that would prevent it. But I think what we did learn is, you know, we you know, you think of restaurant workers, you think of all these people that, you know, can't really work remote that are just out of work. You know, and then you hear about, you know, the, the politicization of, 
you know, not getting these stimulus checks to them. You know, there's a lot of people out there that, you know, can't afford food, can't afford, you know, to pay their mortgage, to pay their rent. So it's easy to say, well, let's just lock it down again and get this under control. But, you know, the long term implications and the, the effects on these individuals, you know, I just think it's not realistic. I think, you know, maybe a one time lockdown, you know, we could have given everyone stimulus checks one time then come up with a uniform policy of, you know, wear the masks or else we're going to, you know, we're not going to get through this, but that consistent message at the federal level was never there. And at this point, the genie's out of the bottle and it's tough to do that. And and I appreciate what you said because there's an awful lot of conversation around lockdowns and healthcare uh, that that happens in a vacuum without realizing the millions, tens of millions of, of Americans that don't have the option to work from home in their sweatpants. Uh, you know, that, that have to get out there and do the real work of America. You know, we, we hear about our healthcare heroes and, and hats off to them, but what about the bus drivers and what about the street sweepers and what about, what about, what about, what about all the people in the entertainment industry that, uh, you know, from the ticket takers to the guys that, that clean the stage at, uh, at the 930 club here in DC, um, you know, they're, they're out of work and there's no opportunity that that's going to come back. So, uh, you know, I, I don't want to leave our conversation on, a downside. I, I do want to talk about how we come out of this thing. You know, if you were to armchair quarterback it a little bit, knowing that there have been delays with the vaccine rollout in, in getting it into people's arms, when do you see us getting this to a, a level where, uh, you know, we resume some sense of normalcy? Is that a this summer thing? Is that a 2022 thing? What What are your people telling you? Yeah, so to get back to normalcy, I'm still confident we can, by the end of the summer, maybe the begin September time frame, you know, we'll be back to normal. I, you know, I keep telling myself my son's been out of school since last year, and, you know, I'm optimistic that he's going to be able to be back in that classroom, you know, come fall of, of this year. So I'm still optimistic, but again, you know, it's not a, it's not so much a guess. We could figure that out. You know, we know that to hit that herd immunity, we need to hit about 75% vaccinating 75% of the country. If we do the math, that gets you around 250 million Americans. Well, if we do a million shots a day, that's 250 million days, or excuse me, 250 days to get to 250 million Americans. That's, you know, that puts us out to, you know, sometime in the August, September timeframe. And, you know, we have to think that it's not only getting one shot, it's also getting people, to consistently return for that second shot to get that booster because that's after the second shot is when we see that 95% effectiveness. So, you know, we really have to, I I think, you know, I'm optimistic that, you know, the the new administration is going to take this very seriously and they're going to learn from the mistakes. And uh, at least in my opinion, I'm still optimistic that we could hit that um, somewhat normalcy by uh, next yeah, in the summer, beginning of fall. And what I mean by somewhat normalcy, you know, hopefully schools will be back in session. Uh, you know, maybe we'll be able to go to baseball games again. Maybe restaurants will be open, movie theaters. So that's, you know, I'm optimistic about that. But again, it's, you know, it's going to take some work to get there. And Dean, you mentioned your son is, is home from school. I'm dealing with the same thing. I've got a, a sophomore in high school who likely is not going to see any of his sophomore year inside a classroom and all across the country, including here where we live in the, the metro Washington, D.C. area, there is an enormous push to get kids back in the classroom. And clearly, 
there are lots of students that are they're falling way behind or completely off the radar. Um, we talked earlier about how kids don't seem to be as susceptible to this thing. So, uh, you know, what's the answer there in terms of getting kids back in school? Yeah, we're, you know, we, we know that this affects uh, older adults more than children, but nonetheless, you know, children can get the, the virus. They can spread the virus. Um, you know, I, I think kids learn better in school. Uh, and this is certainly not a knock on teachers at all. I think teachers are doing a tremendous job based on what, you know, the situation we're in, but kids need to be in the classroom. I mean, especially, you know, you talk about, uh, you know, kids in high school, you know, they're, they're not only educational aspects, they're also just social interactions that, you know, a lot of kids, that's, that's a prime time for social development. Uh, so we really need to, you know, get this, have a plan, you know, we have a plan, get this to work, get this vaccination going. Let's, you know, get over the, that million per day threshold uh, and get these kids back in school by definitely by next year, because, you know, I think the long term effects of having kids out of school, you know, maybe we don't see them now, but, uh, you know, I think we really need to get them. It's best for everyone, you know, and not only that, but you also have to think there's a lot of parents out there that, you know, they, what are they doing with their kids? I mean, they have to work and not everyone has the luxury of working from home and, you know, watching their kids. So it's not only a matter of getting the kids, it's also, you know, the issues that parents are dealing with. So why not send them back right now? Uh, right now, I think, you know, it's, we're, we're talking about this new strain that's more transmissible. You know, I think, you know, let's keep the status quo, uh, at least in the short term, let's see if we can get these vaccinations up. Uh, you know, my my daughter who's in pre-K, uh, she's at school, actually. Uh, they wear masks all day. So I think, you know, she's in a very small classroom. Uh, you know, so some kids are in school, but I think that at least in my opinion, the you know, at this point, I'd say let's keep the status quo until we can get this vac- these vaccination numbers up. I can't imagine a pre-K a little girl uh, trying to get them to keep their mask on all day. Maybe it's easier for a little girl than a little boy. My son would never have done that. You know, it's really funny because I would have thought the same thing, but my daughter is, you know, she's a little, uh, she follows the rules and she tells me when I'm walking outside the house, it's really funny how she says coronavirus, but if I don't have my mask on when I walk out that door, the five-year-old's yelling at me. So she's uh, she's adhering to it. I love it. I love it. All right. So before we let you go, Dean, uh, you've got this this focus on pharmaceuticals, uh, chemical technologies. You've worked around uh, formulations and polymers and diagnostics and biologics and, uh, you know, the whole schmear. You're toe-to-toe with physicians and people that, that know this uh, backwards and forwards. If you could wave your Dean Finelli magic wand, uh, how would you advise the federal government to get us to that, you know, million shots in an arm uh, a day so that we can come out of this thing by the end of the summer. What needs to happen? Well, I think there has to be a uniform message. It can't be, you know, okay, I'm going to, you know, provide information to this Republican governor, but not as much to this Democratic governor. I'm going to, you know, we can't have governors saying, I don't trust this or I don't trust that. I mean, we have to have, look, we're all in this, you know, if anything you know, when bad things happen, you know, typically that should bring us back together. Uh, you know, I'm hoping the new administration is going to unify this country around this. 
you know, get these this vaccine out. We're going to learn that we need more people to administer this. And, you know, the, the final thought I would say is, you know, if you haven't been vaccinated, you need to wear the mask. If you have been vaccinated, you still need to wear the mask because you can still even after you're vaccinated, you still may get infected. It, the vaccination looks like it prevents the symptoms, those severe symptoms, but you still may be able to transmit. Uh, so continue to wear that mask because that's the only way that's going to keep us safe until we get through this. Fair enough. I know there are a lot of states' rights guys that would disagree with you, but uh, you are in the thick of it. Dean Finelli, vaccine expert, expert on pharmaceutical and chemical-related technologies. Hey, thanks for spending time with us today. Can we call you back if, uh, if things change? It would be my pleasure. Appreciate your time today, and thank you for listening to the Big Time Talker podcast on the Blog Talk Radio Network, iHeartMedia, uh, Apple iTunes, and you can always ask your Alexa device to play the Big Time Talker with Burke Allen. Thanks to SpeakerMatch.com, our show sponsor. Wherever you go, whatever you do, stay safe, wear that mask, as Dean says, and make it a great day. Bye, everybody.